0: This is Prem Subramanya, and I'm the online content editor for the Journal of Neuroophthalmology and I am joined today by three authors of a recent uh, state-of-the-art review in the journal regarding visual problems that are occurring in astronauts with long-duration space flight. It's a fascinating topic, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Drs. Andrew Lee, Robert Gibson, and Tom Mader. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. And what I'd like to do is just go ahead and start with a few questions here. I'll um, ask Dr. Lee, we know that these uh, astronauts are getting problems that seem to be related or similar to problems that may occur on earth in patients with increased intracranial pressure it's never been proven one way or the other and part of the challenge is you can't don't have a way to measure that in space what the icp might be um are there methods that people are looking at to indirectly or directly measure that? Are we close to understanding a little bit better what the ICP is in astronauts when they're up there?
1: Sure, uh, Prem, That's it's a fascinating question that obviously has terrestrial as well as uh, space implications. Unfortunately, the only way that we can measure intracranial pressure currently on Earth in an accurate way is a direct measurement, either through a lumbar puncture opening pressure of the cerebrospinal fluid pressure or uh, intracranial invasive intracranial monitor. So there's really no good way for us to use these techniques, these terrestrial techniques, lumbar puncture or an ICP monitor safely and easily in a microgravity environment and we're not even sure if it would work. It's it's never really been tested. However, there are some non-invasive measures that are being developed here on Earth to measure ICP. They include measurements of displacement of the tympanic membrane, and also the use of ultrasound, uh, the flow ultrasound of the ophthalmic artery, but also looking at differences across the uh, optic nerve with ultrasound that have shown some promising, but not yet sufficiently validated, consistent or reliable results on earth. And so they're probably not devices that would be easily transported onto the space station or be even reliable or valid enough to rely upon. So the short answer is stay tuned to this channel. Some things are coming down the pike, but we don't have anything really reliable and valid enough to to test ICP in outer space. Bob
0: or Tom, any uh, additional comments? Do you think one of those methods shows any more promise than the other, or do you think we're in a situation where we just have to try whatever seems reasonable and then validate one of them?
2: Well, I think we just have to make absolutely sure that we validate it on Earth as perfect as we can before we make any measurements in space, because once you make them up there, it could be a real decision-maker for us. It could really help a lot. We just have to make sure that data is very accurate.
0: And that actually leads very nicely into the next question that I have for you guys, which is, when the astronauts are up there on the ISS, how are they currently being monitored for the development of these ocular changes? You've written about uh, the slow development of changes at the optic disc, maybe even some findings in the retina. Uh, What's available, and how are we making decisions on whether changes that are happening might actually be dangerous to them?
3: Well, Prim, astronauts on the uh, International Space Station are routinely monitored for the development of these ocular changes using several methods. First and foremost, our number one diagnostic tool on the uh, station is OCT uh, spectralis. Uh, We use uh, several metrics looking for uh, changes to optic disc morphology and retinal changes to include RNFL, uh, minimum rim width, total retinal thickness, and chordal thickness changes. We also have a handheld fundus camera on the station that we use to get very high-resolution images of the optic disc. Uh, we have a tonopen tonometer, a tonopen via tonometer on board. We also, as Andy, Andy mentioned, we have ocular ultrasound using a, a GE device, uh, very sensitive measure of uh, uh, for looking at globe flattening and to assess optic nerve sheet diameter changes. Uh, we have limited... Uh, ability to act to assess visual function on orbit uh, but we do measure visual acuity using an acuity pro software on an onboard laptop uh, we measure near-point acuity as well and then we also have an Amsler grid up there um, we're currently looking at uh, portable parametric devices here on the ground and hopefully in the not too distant future we'll have a way of assessing uh, visual function more more accurately on orbit Astronauts also complete an onboard questionnaire routinely. Uh, the purpose of the questionnaire is to elicit subjective changes in their vision uh, or symptoms that could be consistent with elevated intracranial pressure, such as headaches, uh, transient visual obscurations, diplopia. Um, all these tests are, are done routinely, as I said. Um, baseline studies are performed prior to flight at about 18 to uh, 21 months out and, again, at 6 to 9 months prior to launch. Uh, as you probably know, ISS missions, long duration missions, are typically six months in duration. However, we did have a one-year crew member, Scott Kelly, that just returned from a from a first-ever one-year uh, mission for an American astronaut. Uh, onboard in-flight testing is typically done at 30 days into the mission, uh, 90 days into the mission, mid-mission, and again, uh, typically at 150 days, which is 30 days prior to return, or as clinically indicated, uh, when they do these tests, remote guiders on the ground and SMEs like myself are usually present in the Mission Control Center and uh, we can actually watch the crew members real time perform these tests. And we're there to help them out and answer any questions they have. And this is an essential process because the crew members get very limited training uh, before they go up and it's usually six months before they receive training uh, before they actually do the procedure on orbit. Uh, when they return to Earth, typically initial post-flight testing is done, uh, which includes a 3T MRI, um, which is also done pre-flight. Uh, post-flight testing is done anywhere from three to five days after landing. And then follow-up testing is done as clinically indicated. Uh, and testing may include a lumbar puncture if clinically indicated as well.
0: So it sounds like we're getting quite a bit of data. Uh, Tom or Andy, anything else that you want to add to that that you think is particularly important that's being done that might help us or that we focus on?
1: I think that it will be important ultimately to have some sort of ICP measure or proxy, but everything else that uh, Tom said was was valuable stuff. We We have some We have to differentiate things that we collect for research purposes and for clinical purposes. And so that's sometimes a challenge. Obviously, we want to collect as much data as we possibly can, but their time is limited and what we can do is limited.
0: And I would guess not only is the challenge that their time is limited up there and they have many, many other tasks to do, but there are only a limited number of people who will ever fly these long-duration missions. And you can only draw so many conclusions from that small Sample. So are there other things that scientists back here on Earth can do in model systems in other humans or animal systems or with computer modeling that um, might help us better to understand it? What do you think might hold the most promise?
2: Well, just to, unfortunately, there, there's no way to precisely replicate long duration spaceflight using any type of uh, Earth model that anyone's come up with. Now, having said that, I'll cover some of the, the common terrestrial analogs just to give you an idea of the spectrum of studies that have been done over time. And some of them are pretty unique. The terrestrial animal models have been studied for many years, uh, and these have provided some very useful information, but really limited applicability to astronauts in space. Uh, historically, probably the most common animal studies that probably everybody's heard about are the rat hind limb suspension studies, and this is basically where you take a rat and you elevate him by either his hind legs or his tail or maybe a pelvic suspension device, that type of thing, and it unloads the hind limbs, and this has been used to document bone and muscle atrophy, these sorts of things, and the good thing about animals is that scientists have done bone and muscle biopsies, this kind of thing, to quantitate change, so they're valuable in that sense for sure. Now, there have been uh, limited neuro-ophthalmic studies on animals. In rabbits, they've done head-down tilts where they've found spikes in intracranial pressure. And then there have been ionizing radiation studies, and these attempt to replicate solar radiation, which could be a problem on some really long-duration space flights, uh, particularly if you're going to Mars or another planet. And these uh, radiation studies have documented increased intracranial pressure in pigs, and in rats they've noted some learning and behavior changes. The trouble is that there's no real evidence to suggest at this point anyway that radiation causes these types of changes in humans. In other words, with most of the animal studies, although there's some useful information obtained, it's it's very difficult to directly translate animal research into clinical outcomes from humans, and this has been kind of a consistent finding. Now, moving on to humans, We do have Earth-based models, but once again, they're not exactly analogous to what you'd see during long-duration spaceflight. Head-down tilt tests are probably the most common, and I suspect that most of us have seen these on TV or in magazines and so forth. This has been used for decades and has provided some very useful information. And basically, this is a simple sort of experiment. You take a subject, you put them at probably 6 to 12 degree head-down position, and you leave them there for days to weeks. I think the longest study I've ever seen that I'm aware of in humans is they've been in a head-down position for about four months, which is a long time to be in a head-down position. And this is basically used as an analog for cephalid fluid shifts. It also, like in the animals, it documents bone demineralization, muscle loss, very similar to what you see in extended microgravity. So there's some accuracy with this. The good thing about the head-down test, and I've been involved in a couple of these, It's a controlled environment. In other words, if you wanted to do a head-down test in your own laboratory surrounded by all the machinery you could possibly want, it would be a good way to get some precise measurements. And so that's one of the big advantages to head-down tilt. You can get a lot of data. Now, the limitations. The problem is, obviously, the subject is still exposed to the 1G environment. And this is a problem. When you're on Earth, you always have that issue, no matter what type of... Uh, procedure you do on a patient you're still in the 1G environment and the subject still has to elevate his head a bit to eat or go to the bathroom that kind of thing and respect to neuro ophthalmology this model can give us some basic information regarding fluid shifts but it doesn't necessarily reflect what happens in space and for example Head-down-tilt documented a quick spike in intraocular pressure uh, during some head-down-tilt tests back in probably the late 1980s. And it was thought perhaps because there was a spike in intraocular pressures that maybe this might reflect a, a constant increase in intraocular pressure during space flight. Maybe we were thinking that maybe astronauts are going to get glaucoma. But then years later on the ISS, we uh, documented that the, intracranial, that the intraocular pressure in microgravity did indeed go up initially, but it normalized over a period of weeks in space, so it didn't turn out to be a problem. And this was somewhat of a false alarm that was predicted by head down tilt, but it didn't actually happen in long duration space flight. Now, on the other hand, this same intraocular uh, pressure spike suggested that perhaps there might be some choroidal expansion during space flight. This was responsible for the spike in pressure and basically with head down tilt or spaceflight, you have increase in venous pressure in the neck and the head as well as the vortex vein system. And the vortex vein, of course, drains the choroid. So if there was increased pressure there, this might lead to a, a spike in pressure and an expansion of the choroid because, you know, basically it's uh, you have an expanded area inside the eye, uh, which is a rigid sphere. So, of course, the pressure would go up in unison. So uh, the odd thing about this is we actually had to wait about 20 years or so for the the OCT technology uh, to come along to verify what was going on. And indeed, by OCT, we were able to find out that both during head-down tilt, parabolic flight, and on the ISS, that there was indeed a a spike in the volume of of the choroid. So this is an example of a prediction from a head-down tilt That was actually later confirmed. So, with head down studies, they provided useful information, but it's really basic kind of information only. It does not exactly replicate what we see during extended microgravity. And no matter, you know, they've done a whole lot of head down studies, and we've looked at the eye and so forth with those, but in none of them have we documented disc edema or globe flattening or any of those things we're really concerned about. Uh, during uh, long-duration spaceflight, and then the the last thing I'd like to talk about the last Earth-based analog uh, for humans would be parabolic flight. And this has been touched on before. But during parabolic flight, at the at the apex of parabolic flight, there's about a 20 to 25 second period where the subject is in freefall and they're you know weightless, if you will. And this gives you a snapshot of microgravity changes. There's a rise in intraocular pressure almost immediately. Well, just as soon as you can use the tonal pen on them, there's a rise in pressure. As I said, there are retinal vascular changes. You get choroidal expansion within that 20-second window, also. And the other thing about parabolic flight is it's used to test equipment. In other words, if you use an applanation tonometer during parabolic flight, it won't work because it's gravity dependent. But on the other hand, A tonopan, a strain gauge device like that, does work. But these have to be tested in space before they're flown on the ISS. Otherwise, you really don't know how various instruments are going to be working. You have to make sure there's not some component that's not gravity dependent. So overall, parabolic flight has limited usefulness because it only measures acute changes, but it's given us some good data. So in summary, to answer your question of Earth-based analogs, Earth-based studies that provide some useful information. The trouble is it just gives you a limited view of a very complicated subject. And these Earth-based studies really serve to emphasize, I think, the value of the ISS as a research platform for long-duration spaceflight. Because no matter how hard you try or what study you come up with, it's very difficult to come up with something that's an analog to a prolonged uh, study of microgravity on an Earth-based analog.
0: So we get good clues from what happens on Earth, but not going to give us the answer. And it sounds like, I suspect all of you would agree, that we need to just get more data on people as they are up there and try to draw the best conclusions that we can.
2: That's correct. And like you said, the the big issue with astronauts is you have such a small end. So if there were some great Earth-based analog that were to pop up, we'd love to use it. But the reality is we just haven't come up with one yet.
0: All right, well, I would like to thank all three of you for joining me to discuss this very important and uh, somewhat understood but evolving issue involving astronauts in long duration spaceflight. And as you pointed out uh, here today and in your article, this is a real challenge as we look forward to extended space missions and perhaps even sending uh, man's flight to Mars. So thank you all for your participation and thanks for your article in the journal.
1: Thank you.